this guy is a moderately religious guy and uh, is in Jerusalem has a court appointment and he's got to get to the courthouse and he's he left a little bit late. He's rushing around and he's searching his drive. He drove there. He's trying to find a parking space. There's no parking space there. And he's driving around, circling around, looking for a parking space. He's desperate. I can't, I can't find a parking space. He finally says, God, please, I need a parking space. I've got to get to this thing or I'm in big trouble with the court. Please, I need a parking space. I, I will I will observe all the mitzvot. I will, I will promise you I will... I, I, I will do everything on, on Rosh Hashanah every Shabbat. I will promise to keep it. And and just then, a, uh, a car right in front of the courthouse pulls out right in front of him. And he looks up and he goes, never mind, I got a space here. <laughs> <laughs> started today's episode with a cold opening. The voice you heard at the beginning was comedian Mark Jaffe telling me one of his favorite jokes. I had a chance to interview him recently. If you don't know Mark Jaffe, he's a comedian and comedy writer based in the Cleveland area. He is most famous for being a writer on the Seinfeld show, and we are going to discuss that during the interview, both how he got that job and what it was like working for Seinfeld, as well as what some of the content parameters might have been. He's also uh, written some plays and books. His most well-known book is called I'm Sleeping with Your Gynecologist. Mark's wife is, in fact, a gynecologist, and he tells anecdotes and humorous stories from the life of being married to a doctor. So you should check that out. Let me get one thing out of the way. Both Mark and Mai's last name is spelled J-A-F-F-E. His name is pronounced Jaffe, whereas I pronounce my name Jaffe. Sorry for the background, but I thought that should be clarified. Uh, people often ask if we are related. We are not particularly related. Jaffe is a common Jewish name. We usually say that Jaffe, as Mark pronounces it, is the Americanized pronunciation, and Jaffe, as my family pronounces it, is a little bit more of the ethnic pronunciation. After my interview with Mark, there will be an update from the Rabbit Hutch, as well as my reaction to an article I found called Don't Dismiss the Power of Prayer. So make sure you hang around for that. And you know, this podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. So make sure when you listen to it, you uh, give us stars, give us likes, give us comments. All those sorts of actions help us grow the podcast. Anyway, uh, I want to welcome you. Thank you for listening today. And next, my interview with Mark Jaffe. And the podcast is called The Comical Heathen. The Comical Heathen? Yes. Okay. Which I think, I don't know, I would say probably a high percentage of comedians are. Yes. <laughs> I think it's very rare that uh, to have somebody like Colbert, who's uh, you know, an avowed uh, Catholic, who sure. uh, you know, still adheres to the faith. Sure. Um, just I'm, in my general talks with comedians, uh, I don't think. I think there's a high degree of uh, cynicism amongst comedians sometimes. Right. right. I'd say I, you know, I've only got about I've got about ten episodes out now, mm -hmm. and so go back and listen to them. But about half of the people I've interviewed, because we don't have to talk about religion, religion. Right. Um, but people want, like to talk about that, and mm -hmm. I'd say about half the people I've interviewed have said they believe in something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, the other half don't believe in anything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. It's either nihilists or believers. Like there's no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not I much. Don't know if, uh, 
Uh, let's see, where would I fall into those? I, as I as I get older and older, I mm -hmm. start to fall into the not believing in anything uh, category. Sure. But uh, you know, I mean, certainly when I was young, I had a strong upbringing in religion. I went to uh, Hebrew day school. Sure. So did you learn Hebrew at Hebrew day school? Like, um, well, I did. I, I now am, I now speak Hebrew, but it wasn't from. I had a good basis in terms of like reading and writing, but I, right. there wasn't any spoken. But we. Right did read it and write it in, in school, so I, I got that. But the religious stuff was the more of the focus than uh, sure. cultural or uh, things to do with Israel. Right. And we, we so we used to have these uh, rabbis that were, uh, right. guys would hit us and make our fingers, pull our fingers back and do all kinds of things, nasty okay. things. And actually, I used to joke it in my act, I'd say that we had a religious exchange program with a Catholic school near us where once a month, the nuns would come over and hit us, so, so we get to <laughs> learn about both religions. Sure, sure. multiculturalism, yeah. right? Always right. good. So, um, so yeah. Through sixth grade, I was in a serious uh, crap where you have to, you know. Now I look back on it, and it was funny because my mother, my mother absolutely couldn't stand this, mm -hmm. and my father was the one who, who insisted we go there because he had, you know, my grandfather was funded uh, the school to some degree and you know or you gave the money and was and was orthodox and my father grew up orthodox and my mother grew up reformed so there was always that battle going on in my house all right of uh, sure yeah what, what you can do and what you can't so we, we kept kosher but we uh, would occasionally uh, my mother loved lobster she would bring in the lobster <laughs> on paper plates you couldn't sure. infect the dishes. dishes. But, uh, yeah, you could uh, eat on paper plates, which I always was also something I wondered about, uh, you know, because clearly we could never eat pork. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was always the exception to, to eating lobster, which I think it was because uh, Jews were never persecuted by being forced to eat lobster. Sure. You know, it was like, you know, yeah, you yeah. filthy Jew, dip it in the butter sauce, <laughs> you know. It was so, but, yeah, there was all kinds of weird conflicts going on in my religious well, So when uh, when did you start doing stand-up, like approximately? Uh, half an hour ago. Okay. Was, How's that going uh, for you so yeah, far? Pretty good, Bad, I think. Made yeah. any money in the past 29 and a half minutes? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that portends well for the rest, <laughs> rest of my career. Uh, I started doing it in, I did a little in high school. Sure. Um, there wasn't much opportunity around, but then, uh, then when I went to college, I did... Uh, Every other week, we there was a show, uh, more of a sketch show. Right. And then in grad school, there was a club that started that was just a stand-up club at the university, and I started doing that. And and was that and, in Chicago? Grad no, school? well, that was the University of Michigan. Okay, Co Co Ann Arbor. Yep. yep. And uh, then in the summer, between my two years of grad school, I went to uh, Chicago for a job okay. and would hit the clubs at night. And that's when I said, "Oh, wow, this is so." You know, I was doing well in a big city, Is this not just approximately 1980s or early. Uh, or yeah, early 80s. So that would have been 80. Summer of 81 was when I was in Chicago. Okay. Ba right. Baseball strike season. Was there much so. comedy? I mean, yeah, Chicago? yeah. Chicago was uh, there was Zanies, which still exists, and sure. then there was a couple of other clubs that uh, are no longer in existence, but kind of more suburban right. clubs, and um, but they were showcase clubs, which was okay. nice. So instead of like now. You know, most, most cities, aside from New York, L.A., right. and Chicago, I guess, to some degree, have, uh, you know, the middle opener, right. middle headliner, MC middle headliner kind of thing where they're bringing someone in. This was, you know, everybody does 15 
sure. 15, 20 minutes, whatever, and there's maybe, you know, a dozen comedians in the course of the night. It would go late into the night. Uh, and so you would, but you would fight for slots. There were a lot of comedians around. And, and okay. uh, I just went, you know, uh, initially nobody knew me. Well, it was my first time in Chicago. And I would get, somebody would give me a late night slot. And then slowly, slowly by the end of the summer. Right. Uh, they were giving me the Saturday night, you know, good slots. Oh, and right. so I was like, okay, well, this is unsuccessful here to a degree. Maybe I should, instead of following up and getting a, you know, after I got my MBA, uh, okay, so rather than getting a real job. A I, business degree. Yeah, yeah, business degree. I should uh, just chuck all that and move out to LA. So with your MBA, you never thought of owning a comedy club? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On occasion, I did think of it. I looked around in Chicago, actually, uh, at one point. Uh, Man, that's too much work. In the, those early 80s in Chicago and then later in New York, just around were a lot of comedians doing either religion or religious satire. Was that rare? Was it common? Was it particular people did it? Wow. Uh, I, I don't recall it being particularly prevalent, but, um, you know, I mean, I think there were certainly... Like I kind of remember Carlin doing things like sure. that, but you know he wasn't one of the. He was at a different level than sure. what I was talking about or interacting with on a day-to-day basis. How about you? Um, Were you at that time like was that a thing in your act at all? Writing jokes about it? Um, only to the degree that it was personal, and I think that's what most people would do it as, rather than. Um, I don't think there were too many out there saying, "Okay, I'm going to tackle the subject of." Catholicism or something like that, right. you know, or, or some, uh, you know, let's talk about the Pope. Um, I think they were, you know, doing it like I was right. on a personal level if there was something about my being Jewish or my upbringing oh, sure. that I thought was funny, yeah. I would be willing to try it. I, I, and it never, not, not like, like I, I, at most I would have little, you know, little bits where, you know, maybe two minutes or three minutes on something. Sure. That, you know, rather than just one line, but nothing more than that. You right, know. and it was generally so, cultural, like being raised Jewish or being Jewish. Or yeah, yeah. Well, you'd have to, I mean, you have to realize that your audience isn't necessarily going <laughs> to understand yes. if, you're, yes. uh, if you're getting too into the weeds. Yes, I have a um, great brisk joke that rarely right. gets a good laugh. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, do you have a great brisket? That's the question. Um, I deserve that. <laughs> I, uh... You know, if there are there were occasions uh, where I get hired for a function, mm-hmm. you know, a, a Jewish function or something, where I could stretch out, so to speak, okay, sure. and, and say, okay, this is uh, a little more. They'll well, understand this stuff. Uh, if I throw in the word haroset, you know, they'll, <laughs> they'll know what it is. You're joining us somewhat mid-conversation. We haven't actually been properly introduced. I'm your oh. host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, and I'm pleased to have as a guest and conversation partner. Uh, Mark Jaffe. Yeah, we have the same spelling, different pronunciation. I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> um, I'm under the impression that the Jaffe pronunciation is the Americanized pronunciation, oh, okay. and the, the Jaffe is the ethnic pronunciation. Okay. And uh, this conversation. Where do, you, where do you think the name came from? Do you have any idea where you're? My great grandfather came from Latvia, okay. so it has a kind of Latvian slash Russian uh-huh. origin, though the urban legend. Is that it may go back further to in Israel? But that that was his area. name uh, even was back in the in the old country. Yes, was Jaffe. Really? Yeah. Because mine mine wasn't. Mine was I think Berkowitz. Okay. Was the name same area? Sure. Um, that my grandfather came from. 
and, but then he changed it when he came to uh, came to America, and I don't know. I think it was just based on you know the the city in Israel, or you know. The, yes. The, yeah. So. It's like the orange city. Right. City right. of oranges. Right. right. <laughs> and orange flavored candies. <laughs> My grandfather had one brother, both now passed away, but they pronounced their names differently. So oh, my really? grandfather's, okay. meaning me as well, all say Jaffe, but his brother, so all my cousins on that side of the family all say Jaffe. Oh, okay. That's interesting. It's a little weird. I'm sure you know Mark Jaffe, but if you don't know Mark Jaffe, one of uh, your big credits is being a writer for Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. how, how long did you do that for? Uh, well, I was on staff for the first full season of Seinfeld, um, and then I uh, contributed uh, some episodes after that, uh, okay. freelance uh, stories okay. uh, through just you know, yeah. pitching to them and my relationship with them. There's three or four episodes you have writing credits for, like your right. name is on screen, but you were right. also part of the writing staff contributing. Well, yeah, the, the right. The first the season when I was on staff, I, I have screen credit, but it comes afterwards. So sure. I, don't have, I, I don't have story or script credit. Um, then the ones that I sold as the story, then those I have the pre-show sure. credits. Um, you know, on the one hand, that's network television and even 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So it's, in a way, not edgy by what people today would think of as right. edgy. But in that time period, you have Jerry Seinfeld, whose stand-up is so welcoming. Yeah, but the show, main, mainstream, which, yeah, the show yeah. which could be edgy. Right, and right. Yeah, it was somewhat innovative at the time and, and certainly touched on subjects and... Yeah. To things that were uh, right. were on the edge. Yeah. Sure, of course, master your domain is like the yeah. famous phrase. But yeah, well, my mine that was a little I don't know if it's edgy or not, but uh, is the uh, the nipple where Elaine exposes her nipple sure. on a Christmas card. Yes, um, here we are with all these Christmas trees around. Yes, right? yes. in a lovely <laughs> Allen Theater, yes, Playhouse at Square. The time. But uh, yeah, so I guess that and that was probably a little bit edgy. Sure. Uh, so, and that, over the course of the show, there, there's an episode here and there where religion might come up. I remember an episode where Lane dated someone who was religious, and then it turned into an episode about abortion and choice. Oh, but no, it, but no, in no, general, no, yeah. you know, most of your television sitcoms aren't going to tackle Didn't, religious right, right. issues as a. You don't want to alienate half your audience. audience. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a much much harder thing to do uh, in in depth or. You know, to, uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily the place for it in a sitcom. There are sure. other places in television, certainly nowadays, where right. it would be uh, something you could do. Well, I mean, um, nowadays, between cable and all your other platforms, there's certainly like a variety of outlets for a variety of right. voices and point of views and, and what have you. Yeah. A thing which I've observed, but I don't. I'm wondering if it's true. So just let me know if you have an opinion. I, I feel like there's a. This has a serious side to it, so I'm trying to prepare you for this question yeah, more okay. friendly. Since September 11th, I feel like there's been more religious satire floating around the comedic world. Well, um, I, I don't know necessarily that picking September 11th as a as a point of inflection is is something that. Uh, well, maybe maybe it would be, and certainly in terms of uh, the Islamic world, and, uh, sure. and having that uh, all of a sudden be uh, something that people maybe sure. open their eyes to and have different uh, opinions on in terms of whether it's mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, how, how we treat people, Muslims, and uh, how we keep ourselves safe, I guess, or sure. whatever. So, um, so yeah, in that it w- that would have become a subject that would be allowed to be talked about, at, you know, or, or be necessary okay. to be talked about it after sure. September 11th more than it was before, I guess. Um, as someone who right. had lived in Israel and okay. traveled in the Arab world and speaks Hebrew and some Arabic as well, um, it was something that had always been on my mind. Okay. Uh, trying to get a, a handle on the whole, you know, on, on that situation. Sure. So Complexities. And yeah. All so... Things. So for me, it wasn't like a, something all of a sudden that, that I said, oh, September 11th, now things have changed. Um, sure, now I need to think about these things. Right, you were already right, thinking about them. Right. So for me, I wouldn't say in any way it was a point of inflection. But um, for society, American society, sure it was in so many ways. So to think that it would be uh, extrapolated into comedy as well is not... It's not beyond uh, reason. Now, you mentioned uh, George Carlin. Were there any other comedians when you started com- doing comedy who may have influenced you? Who, who influenced me, n- not necessarily with religion. No, no, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I was influenced by all of them to some degree. Sure. I mean, I, there are people that I, I loved as a, as a kid. I was... I uh, love Woody Allen. I love sure. uh, Bill Cosby. Sure. You know any other uh, you know sexual predators that I should <laughs> Did you left out? <laughs> that I, yeah. Uh, you know Flip Wilson. I used to like. Uh, and then um, as I as I got older, uh, it's hard to remember exactly who I loved then versus sure. uh, who I love now. And at some point, I got into Bob and Ray, and and those guys okay. are just brilliant i love them uh steve martin when he came along was just uh, eye-opening he was sure so so unique and and just uh phenomenal deconstructing things and yeah, yeah he seemed so, to be like the first yeah postmodern comedian like it was all, yeah. everything was meta but also he was just enormously successful like doing yeah. sta- the idea you could do stadium comedy in stadiums or yeah yeah, yeah that yeah. kind of so those those guys have all been influences, and then you know as I, some of my peers, uh, people that uh, you know I love now, it still now, or there's plenty of great people out there. So. Sure, um, Mark kindly when I asked you to do this interview, jotted down some of your old jokes. No, no actually not all more old. I'm just okay. trying to remember because you know there's was religious stuff. I mentioned to a couple there. Oh, yeah. The religious exchange program. Let's see. Yeah, it was uh, uh, the lobster thing. I used to joke about Hanukkah, which is coming up. Uh, okay, what's a good Hanukkah? Hanukkah, I used to, I, I would say, uh, you know, comparing it to Christmas, we got people don't know Hanukkah has eight days, mm-hmm. and we give a present every day. Yeah. Like as a kid, I remember the first day my sister used to get a doll's head. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the eighth day, she pretty much knew what she was getting. <laughs> That was my Hanukkah joke. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, you know, people ask why there's so many Jews and are comedians, and and I always said that I, I thought it was kind of a metaphor for our position in society. You know, standing alone and getting by on our wits, uh, and mm-hmm. and also there's no physical labor involved. Yes. So that's, <laughs> that's really the main that, thing. Yeah. 
So uh, those, those are a few. I have some that are still in my act and talk about things, uh, getting to heaven and so forth. But you know, you'll have they'll have to come see me. To, yeah, absolutely. To hear the current stuff. Sure. <laughs> well, we're talking now at the tenth annual Cleveland Comedy Festival. Yes. Uh, we just was part of a very interesting panel about television writing for people who want to see Mark Jaffe do stand up. How can they find out about that, those appearances? Well, I'm appearing tonight, so I'll, <laughs> how quickly are you able to turn this thing around? So he's appearing two months ago at the... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, beyond two months from now, I have no idea where I'm going to be performing. I don't do it very often now. I'm uh, semi-retired, and it's hard to... Uh, I'll appear at uh, Toth's uh, Comedy uh, sure. on a Wednesday night at some point. In the you future know. near you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, just a couple more generic questions on the topic of religious satire. As a writer and performer who's um, uh, done so much, and then uh, as I would say, younger comedians, you know, around you bothering you, would you have <laughs> any advice? Don't bother me. Or any advice for someone about religious satire? Like, is there a way to do it well? Is there things that you wouldn't recommend? Or no, I mean, in terms of stand-up it's just it's still depending on the joke you know i mean is it funny if it's funny it's it, it has to be funny first now then beyond that you may have to edit yourself depending on how right you know how you want your audience to react so right. they can uh some might be offended by things um i struggle with this a little bit like i i here's a joke that i have currently in my act uh, uh i talk about um how i have certain genetic issues. I, I don't know what's going to get me in the end. I don't know where, what, it, what I'm going to die from. I talk about death a lot. It's sure. a very good subject for comedy. Hilarious. Um, Agreed. <laughs> so, and I don't know what's going to get me in the end. You know, being Jewish, I have certain genetic issues. Um, for example, if I die from what got my grandparents, I'm most likely to die from Nazis. Um, which gets both a laugh and a oh yes you know so it's like well you know is it worth the laugh for that other reaction and are they really upset am i am i hitting people who have lost somebody in the holocaust right. is that you know but being jewish am i allowed to say that am i you know you, yeah. you may run into something where you get get that kind of reaction and you have to decide is it worth keeping in my act or am i offending anybody am i do i care if i offend anybody so it's I mean, uh, we're both Jewish, even talking about it. You alluded a moment ago about Jewish comedians. Do you think there's a Jewish sense of humor? Is there something about Jewish personality or culture or religion uh, that fosters yeah, well, humor? Well, I, uh, the thing that I said earlier, making a joke about yes. me not being physical labor, but the first part of that I think is definitely valid. Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely something to the idea that you know, it, it is kind of a metaphor for our position in society sure. and being being isolated um, and, and getting by on our wits. Um, yeah, and I think there's also an acceptance of, uh, you know, I, I think there's a tradition in our religion that's non-doctrinaire and, and always evolving. Sure. And so because, uh, because of that, it allows us to question and to make fun of something. Um, okay. And so, you know, you don't have to listen to a pope or anything <laughs> like that. You, you're, you, you know, you can make your own decisions on right. things. So, I think that allows for a freedom to uh, 
to question sure. things and, and questioning and, and looking at society in an honest and truthful manner or your religion or whatever it is, is, is you're going to find humor. So, Oh, Mark Jaffe, let me just ask you one more question. I okay. sometimes just end on this as an interviewer. You want me to do a dance? Is could, that yes. Could you, for radio, too. <laughs> I'll describe it to the listeners while you're doing it. No, just um, on the topic of religious satire, is there anything we haven't covered that just do you have an opinion or anything you'd like to say about religious satire? Uh, I'm no, I'm always happy to have more of it. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think there's I think it's a good thing to do. I think you know religion is one of the, both the easiest and the hardest things to satirize. Sure. I think people who can do it well, it's it's a great thing, and and hopefully will open the eyes of. Some people who are a little, uh, you know, fun, fundamentalism in any uh, in anything is always going to be a little bit scary. But in religion, it seems to be more so than other things. So, making fun of, of that kind of stuff, I think <laughs> it's always good to do. Well, it seems like a a, a somber and wise place to stop. <laughs> okay. So let me just end by thanking you, Mark, All for right. sitting You're out with me for a few minutes. It's been my pleasure. Uh, it's on the, to do this here on the Sabbath. Yes. <laughs> 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 I'm operating a machine that I do not think is approved in any right. way. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you, Mark. All right, Jay. So that's my interview with Mark Jaffe. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Really enjoyed hearing about the early days on Seinfeld and how he got on the show and uh, some of his other interests. So I hope you got as much out of that as I did. As you may know, my wife and I are rabbit enthusiasts. We have two Holland Lops right now, Newton and little baby Kelvin. Uh, they're getting along very well. One of the things that rabbits do in the wild is that they're very territorial. And when you bring two new rabbits together, they do different things to get used to each other. Something that some rabbits will do in the wild and household pet rabbits is what's called chinning. Chinning is when a rabbit goes up to an object that's part of its territory and rubs its chin on it, sort of spreading its scent so that other animals know that this area is its territory. And it seems really cute when house rabbits do it because of course Calvin and Newton live indoors so there's not like other animals or predators or animals around. Calvin is really into chinning. He goes all over the cages, all over the toys, all over the furniture that he can reach and you put anything in his area and he runs straight up to it and starts chinning it. And I just want to tell you one really cute story. My daughter had a stuffed toy octopus and she wanted to see what the rabbits would do, so she put it down in their carpet where they spend most of their time. And Kelvin ran right up to it and systematically and carefully chinned all eight tentacles one at a time. Like rub, rub, rub. It was very funny watching him do it so systematically. So that's what's going on with Kelvin and Newton today. You know, one of the side effects of having rabbits in the house is that we have rabbit cages and we line the rabbit cages with newspaper. It seems like you know, the last practical use for newspaper in this modern digital age. But because of having all these newspapers around, I've actually started reading headlines again. At the bottom of rabbit cages, but still I'm reading the headlines again. And every once in a while, a headline will pop out having to do with some topic related to religion. And what will stand out is that there's something either misleading or controversial or incorrect about it. Sometimes even just factually incorrect. And whenever I see a headline like that or an article like that, I just have to correct it because in my opinion, misinformation is a sin. 
So I, that's why I say misinformation. You know, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's good time. I'm just spreading the love. You know, it might be your dogma, but it's my karma. So what did I find at the bottom of the rabbit hutch today? I came across a headline from the Jewish Journal published in November 2017. Of course, it's natural that the Jewish Journal would have articles on religion, as well as recipes for cinnamon spice gefilte fish. Of course, that all that's natural. But this particular headline was really caught my attention. The headline said, don't dismiss the power of prayer. It's made me curious, who's dismissing what power? As it turns out, the article was written in response to a recent mass shooting. Unfortunately, saying written in response to a recent mass shooting doesn't actually give you enough information to know what I'm talking about, which is itself a sad commentary on the state of things in America when I can use the phrase recent mass shooting and you don't know which one I'm referring to because this is America today. I've got to clarify which recent mass shooting we're even talking about. Well, in this case, the gun over enthusiast walked into a Baptist church and killed 26 people, leaving another 20 injured. In response, politicians snapped into crisis response mode, rolling up their sleeves to do the hard work of offering thoughts and prayers. For example, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan tweeted, The people of Sutherland Springs need our prayers right now. So, the third highest ranking U.S. official, second only to the President and Vice President, called for immediate action from God. Now, some noted that there was irony in politicians passing the buck to the man upstairs when the slaughter du jour happens to take place in a church full of parishioners that was converted into a scene from the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Now, the article in the Jewish Journal does not acknowledge this irony. Uh, instead, it cites examples like uh, actor Will Wheaton, who tweeted in response to Ryan, the murder victims were in a church. If prayers did anything, they'd still be alive. And well-known iconoclast Keith Olbermann, also in response to Ryan, blasted, shove your prayers up your ass and do something with your life besides platitudes and power grabs. So the article disregards the context of ineffectual politicians dishing out platitudes like a cafeteria worker plops food onto tray after tray and tries to reframe it under the straw man argument of religious persecution. It only takes notice of this semi-automatic elephant gun in the room long enough to dismiss it. Starting off with the phrase, quote, it is questionable whether some additional law would have prevented the massacre, end quote. As I was reading it, it might as well have continued with something like, because, you know, laws are, like, unpredictable and stuff. Hey, I agree. It is questionable whether some additional laws would have prevented the massacre. That would be a wonderful question to explore. Sadly, it's a question that gun makers and gun sellers and gun lovers won't let anyone explore. Oh, no, now's not the time for a discussion of common-sense gun restrictions, uh, ever. You know, when 71 people died, you know, in the Grenfell Tower fire in West London, that suddenly became a really good time to talk about the flammability of construction materials. But when a church full of worshipers is mowed down, well, then it's always too soon, too political. So I know I'm not supposed to, like uh, it being too soon and all, 
but I'll go ahead and ask anyway. Would hypothetical law X, Y, or Z have made some kind of difference in this particular case? Yeah, maybe. There are plenty of simple common sense and constitutional laws and measures that could help alleviate the gun violence epidemic in this country. Things like closing gun show loopholes, things like more extensive background checks, things like limitations on pseudo-automatic weapons, there's new technologies like smart guns that recognize fingerprints. It's entirely within reason to believe that ideas like this might have, could have, prevented, or lessened the carnage in this event or events like it. But our article relegates these glaring possibilities to the, quote, just no way of knowing for sure, so best not to discuss them, closet, before moving on to the main thrust, crying victim. The article warns, quote, there's something deeper going on with these anti-prayer tweets, more troubling, he goes on to say, dismissing prayer dismisses the value of religion in general, quote unquote. Holy straw man, Batman, it's a straw holy man. These tweets didn't dismiss religion in general any more than people's distaste for Hitler dismissed a short stash. The message wasn't, hey believers, stop believing. The message was, hey politicians, knock off the scoring of easy points with comments about prayer and actually do your job with your position of power that might be difficult, but will strike at the real issue, the gun violence epidemic. The article next goes on to claim, quote, Conflating prayer-driven action with action you like makes religion irrelevant and your political agenda paramount. Quote, yes, shame on you tweeters for making your pleas to politicians all political and stuff. And not just political, but about your political beliefs. Instead of like, um, you know, my political beliefs, it uses the phrase prayer-driven action what the fuck does that even mean? Prayer-driven action? If it means prayer, just say prayer. But if it means prayer-driven action, I thought prayer was for things that human actions can't do. Things that require divine intervention to get done. Like parting the Red Sea. Or watching TV for 24 straight hours without encountering a Kardashian. What the hell does prayer-driven action mean? It says we shouldn't mix together with actions we like because that would be placing our political priorities over religion. So, I mean, I guess that means we should pray for things we don't like or something like that. I'm starting to pray that this article would make more sense. To give it the benefit of the doubt, I guess what it's getting at is that we shouldn't just pray for things for our own benefit are our own interests? I mean, if so, then what about football players on opposing teams who both pray to win the big game? What should they do? Maybe they should pray to different gods. Or the first team to pray gets dibs on God, and then God has to recuse himself from the other team to avoid any chance of conflict of interest. Or maybe there should be like a substitute God to cover the big guy when he rests on the seventh day. You know, like a senior assistant god for the tri-state region, excluding the downtown area and parts of Putnam County. As the article goes on, it then wants to try to explain how prayer, in the face of not getting what you want, helps keep humans humble because, quote, God's plan is not ours, end quote. What? 
well, then whose flag is God waving if not ours? Like we humans have been taking up space while the whole time God has actually created heaven and earth for the mollusks? God's plan is not ours, it says. Nevertheless, we should continue filling out customer comment cards and narrating them skyward so that when management doesn't change its policy, we derive all the benefits of being kept humble and avoid what the article calls, quote, foolish optimism of utopianism. Remember, utopia in this case, meaning a place without mass shootings, mass opioid addictions, and cheese you squeeze out of a tube, i.e. most other countries on earth. I mean, this whole canard of bowing to God's grand but unknowable plan reminds me of a old joke, if you'll pardon the digression. The Wall Street banker who worked 20 hours a day, full of stress and anxiety, and dropped dead at age 30. Meeting God in heaven, he demands to know why life had to be so hard and stressful. To which God replies, That's what all the marijuana was for. Christ, I planted it everywhere. Maybe God wants us to smoke marijuana. Maybe God wants us to get rid of these guns and have better background checks and smart guns. How can this article put down basic optimism as selfish and idealistic, but then promote the idea of phoning in your request to the celestial DJ above, but then play the God's Mysterious Ways card, also known as the Get Out of Thinking Free card, Maybe my foolish optimism for utopia is God's plan. Article goes on to say that prayer might have other values. The article scolds atheists for dismissing prayer as empty verbiage, asking, quote, How many people have been changed because they entered a prayerful community? End quote. So this article is called Don't Dismiss the Power of Prayer, but rather than presenting, you know, evidence for the power of prayer, it switches to talking about the power of community. And it's not even making statements. It's asking for a tally of anecdotes of power of community. And the power of community cuts both ways. It could just as easily have asked, how many people's lives have changed for the better because they left a prayerful community? Shout out to Westboro escapees, Scientology escapees, and ex-Mormons everywhere. It's not that prayer is being mocked. It's these tweets from politicians that are being mocked. It's inaction and the lack of will to affect change and the practical dereliction of duty that are being mocked. But according to this article, we can't tweet about that fact because doing so would be tantamount to mocking the prayerful or something like that, apparently. Just to end, I would say this point. Of course, I agree that religion... At the, as an institution is important to our country. But to paraphrase the wise Groucho Marx, who wants to live in an institution? So all that remains for me is to thank Mark Jaffe for being my interview guest today. I want to thank my good friend Jeff Geddert for his assistance on production, as well as for uh, writing and editing some of the material you hear on this podcast. And the wonderful Bach organ music you hear comes from my friend, Mark Bell. I hope you enjoy it. And finally, uh, make sure you look us up on iTunes and give us stars and give us likes. All that kind of stuff helps the podcast grow. And that just remains for me, your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, to thank you for listening to today's episode. Thank you.
they haven't been able to get to give to the Federation for all these years. They're like, what do we... They say, oh, you know what, let's just go... We'll go over, we'll knock on the door, you know, and they have all the information and, and they, they knock on the door and say, you know, Shmulek, look, I, you know, we, we know you have, a, a, you know, two homes in Europe, you have this, you have that, and they say, so we, why, you, why don't you give to the, you should be giving to the Federation. He goes, look, I know you see all the houses and the, and the cars, I'll tell you what you don't see. You don't see that I got two elderly parents who need full-time care and being taken care of in, in their home. You, you don't see I've got a, a brother who has uh, uh, mental issues, is incapacitated, and, and, and needs full-time care. You don't see that I have a, a sister who has uh, um, uh, about drinking or, or you know, uh, alcohol abuse problems. You don't see all these things, and and if I don't give to any of them, you think I'm going to give to you? 